St. Augustine, an early church father, began a message early in June of 407 with these words. It, is not, it will not come as a shock to your gracious ears to learn that the evangelist John, like an eagle, flies higher than the others, soaring above the foggy atmosphere of the earth and gazing with steadfast eyes upon the light of truth. In the coming months, Pastor Jay is going to give us not only a bird's eye view of the Gospel of John, but an in-depth study of many passages of Scripture. This morning, I want us to focus on one verse in John. John chapter 1, verse 14. It was read for us this morning, but let me read it again. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. Our EFCA doctrinal statement number four says, we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, being in the flesh, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our, Lord, as our high priest and advocate. Most of us are familiar with the Nicene Creed as well as the Apostles' Creed because we repeat those frequently. But there's another creed that relates very definitely to our message this morning, and that's the Chalcedonian Creed. A few years later than the Nicene Creed, this was in 481, we read these words, Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all unite in teaching that we should confess one and the same Son, or Lord Jesus Christ. This same one is perfect in deity, and the same one is perfect in humanity. The same one is true God and true man, comprising a rational soul and a body. He is of the same essence as the Father according to his deity. And he is the same one, is of the same essence with us according to our humanity, like us in all things except sin. That, my friends, is the Christmas story, God with us. Or as our doctrinal statement says, God incarnate in the flesh. Now, our culture today doesn't care for God with us. Because you see, God with us doesn't sell toys. God with us doesn't promote the woke ideology that we have so prevalent in our world today. Well, the world is okay with the cute little stable and, and the fluffy animals and the donkey and, and uh, even, even baby Jesus in the manger. They're, they're okay with that. But added to that is St. Nicholas, and the reindeer, and the trees, and the holly, and the mistletoe, and all of that that goes with that. The marketplace tolerates 
our traditional Christmas carols, but they love to sing about wanting our missing front teeth. They sing about the kissing under their mistletoe. They sing about reindeer. They sing about Santa. They sing about snow. They sing about all the other things as well that we have become so accustomed to seeing at Christmas. And with all of that, it is very easy to forget and overlook the primary reason we come together for Christmas celebrations. Not for family, although family is important and very crucial. Not for the exchanging of gifts, although that is also very interesting and very helpful and, and very encouraging to one another. But we come together to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth and the arrival of Emmanuel. The prophet Isaiah told King Ahaz, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew, in his story of the birth of Christ, reiterates those words uh, of Isaiah, and he adds the meaning to the word Emmanuel, God with us. Luke also records the story in some detail, but it is interesting to know that John records the birth of Jesus Christ in that one verse, John 1:14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Throughout the rest of the gospel, John gives historical facts and information about that birth and about the one who was born that time, but that's all he says about the story of Jesus' birth. Therefore, by his giving all of the historical information in John, he is verifying our faith in historical evidence. It is a history. It is a true fact. It is history. It is a time. It is a place. It is a verifiable uh, story. Oh, by the way, some of you may have wondered over the past years, why do we have two spellings of Emmanuel? Now, maybe some of you didn't know that, but sometimes you see Emmanuel spelt with an E, Emmanuel, and sometimes with an I. By the look on some of your faces, you've never thought about that, but it's true. It is done both ways. And they're both the same word. Emmanuel with an I comes from our Hebrew, and it is a translated letters, transliterated letters from Hebrew into English. It's not a translation. It's simply the same letters, only in English instead of Hebrew. The E comes from the Greek. Therefore, that's, thus ends your brief grammar lesson. So next time, if you see either one of those, don't be confused. They're both the same word, and they both mean God with us. Now, let's look at our text. The Word became flesh. God came to earth. He became a man. In Greek philosophy, the word logos, which we have translated word in our translation, is the rational principle that gave order to the universe. It was that a principle that was rational that gave order to the universe. It was somewhat of a mystical, mysterious word that somehow tied the universe together, the logos, the word. Plato, the great Greek philosopher, said it may be that someday there will come from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain to us. In the Old Testament, when we read of God's word, it is his self-expression. It is his self-expression in creation, 
in revelation, in salvation. John thought it was a good word to use to apply to Jesus, as Jesus is in, in, clearly the one who brings order to the universe. In fact, he's the creator of the universe. That principle, that person that brought it all together. And it's a great word that he could use. And the, the uh, non-believer, the outsider, would also recognize Logos as that principle, that, that which binds the universe together. It's a starting point for the unbeliever. For the believer, it is a clear indication who this person is. Because in John 1, verse 1, or John has used the words to tie him to the word to Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a clear indication of who that Word is. It is Jesus, as we read, continue to read through the Scriptures. And so this is the Word that came, the Word of God that came from God. Jesus became a man, because we're told that the Word, the Word, Jesus, became flesh. The word didn't turn into flesh. It wasn't something that mysteriously changed. It didn't change its nature. The word didn't change the nature and become flesh. The nature, uh, the word didn't masquerade as flesh, didn't suddenly say, well, I'll identify as flesh. But the word was born flesh. The word was made flesh. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus stood in front of his disciples after his resurrection, and he said, look at me, look at me, my hands, my feet, my body, touch me. A ghost doesn't have all of this. This is not a ghost. This is a real man standing before you. And so God chose to make himself known to the world as a human being. Now, at the same time, Jesus didn't cease to be God. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, and Pastor Jay um, referred to this last week, uh, we read, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Lord. This is the Lord. Whether he becomes, comes into the world and becomes flesh or not, he is the Lord. And Jesus never lost that, never left that. He didn't set that aside totally and become only a man. He became both, as our, our creeds have said, fully God and fully man. And so in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, we also read, for in Christ the fullness of deity resided and lives in bodily form. Yet he became human as any one of us are, in, uh, except that he didn't have a biological father. He was conceived by an act of the Holy Spirit. But from that point on, Jesus was just like any other developing baby in the womb. Ever stop to think about that? Mothers especially, to think about that? Jesus turned and he kicked. He hiccuped. He moved a lot. My wife used to say our kids were playing soccer, uh, especially when you're trying to sleep, apparently. That he, that's what Jesus did. We don't think of Jesus in that form. But if he was truly human, that's how he developed and grew. 
He had messy diapers after he was born, or whatever the equivalent of a diaper was in those days. He cried when he was hungry. He was uh, learning how to walk, and he would fall down. He didn't just stand up and walk permanently. He fell down because he was a human child. He probably scraped his knees when he fell down or when he jumped off a building or whatever he did as a teenager or as a young kid. Yes, that was Jesus. And see, we, we often forget that, that he was as any other human was. He was God in the flesh. He never had sin, though. What would it be like to raise a child without sin? Have you ever thought of that? <laughs> That's kind of an interesting dilemma, isn't it? You know, and, and to know when, when it crosses, something crosses from simply personality to sin. You know, did he have a messy room? Did he have to be told to clean his room many times? Did he come every single time instantly when his parents called? Did he ever say no to his parents? You know, did, did Mary and Joseph ever have the temptation to compare the, his younger brothers and sisters to Jesus? Why can't you be like Jesus? <laughs> you know, we, parents, you know, much as we say we're never going to do that, we tend to do that at times, comparing siblings. Because he was human, just like you and I are. As an adult, he also experienced all of the human traits. He had human emotions. He cried at the tomb of Lazarus. He got tired and he fell asleep on a boat. He sat down beside the well while the disciples went into to, um, the, the city and uh, got food because he was tired. On the cross, he said, I thirst. I'm thirsty. He had all of the human characteristics that made him truly human. Luke chapter 2, 52, verse 52 says that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew just like we do. As a two-year-old, he was a certain size. As a six-year-old, another size, eight, 10, 12. He grew, and he grew in wisdom as well. So he was learning as well. And that, that's hard sometimes for us to grasp that that he was divine, he was omniscient, and yet he was learning and growing. Went to school, I'm sure, as all good Jewish boys would have done. And so Jesus became a man, although he never forgot that he was God, because in, when he was 12 years old, his parents found him in the temple. And what did he say? Didn't you know I needed to be doing my father's business? So even at age 12, he understood that he was different and that he was divine, but yet he was human at the same time. He came in God's time. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says that when the time had fully come, Jesus was born of a, of a woman. The time had come. What time? Well, historically, it was a time when the peace of Rome or the Pax Roma has settled across the civilized world, and Rome had been able to stabilize the, the, the area. And 
They had built roads, as we, the, the common cliche goes, all roads lead to Rome. They had roads, they had, had a great deal of commerce, and they had a system that allowed for the spread of information. And as they did this, in, spread the information through commerce, the Greek language also spread throughout the world of that day. And so it was a perfect time historically for the coming of Jesus. It was the right time. Theologically, it was a time God set. It was almost as if God had an alarm clock in heaven, as it were. And all of a sudden, the alarm went off, and, Jesus, and God said, Okay, Jesus, it's time. It's time for you to go. This is the time I have set, and you're coming. And Jesus came in God's time. It's interesting how timing is important and how timing affects different events. In 1809, the international scene was in great turmoil as Napoleon was sweeping across Europe. And Austria was under his fire at that time, and, and the blood was flowing freely. Nobody was worried about babies being born in the world anywhere. And yet there were significant births during that time, which have, far, have impacted the world far, in a far greater way than Napoleon's conquests ever did. Men like Alfred Tennyson was born to an obscure minister and his wife, and his literature has affected the world down through the years. A wealthy society physician named Darwin and his wife named, had a baby boy, and they named him Charles. And we have still felt the effects of Charles Darwin's theories of evolution. How many of us still are aware of Napoleon's conquests in Europe? Probably no one, unless you're a historian. But we certainly know the effects of Darwin's life. In, in a small log cabin in Sinking Farm, in Sinking Farm, uh, Sinking Spring Farm in Hodgeville, Kentucky, the cries of Abraham Lincoln filled the room. And he had an impact that far perceived far succeeded anything that Napoleon did. So yes, we often focus on one area, and yet on the other area, there's far greater impact taking place. And God said, okay, this is the time. In the midst of all of this going on here, we're going to have a little baby born in the town of Bethlehem. And then John says, he lived among us. He lived on earth. These are stories we hear regularly of gods visiting the earth. They come, and they visit the world and the earth, and they probably cohabitate with women and, and, and whatever they do on earth, and then they leave. Stories of myth. But Jesus stayed. Jesus stayed in Bethlehem or in, in the area. John says he dwelt his, he made his tent he made his dwelling among us. It's a word that means tent or tabernacle. And it probably brought the Jews back to the idea of the Old Testament tabernacle, which clearly indicated the presence of God was within that building, as, we, as he was elsewhere as well, but particularly in that temple and tabernacle where he had uh, made his uh, appearance. But now with the coming of with God coming in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived among them people. William Booth Clyburn wrote a hymn that some of you may, have be, may be familiar with. 
Down from his glory, ever-living story, my God and Savior came, and Jesus was his name. Born in a manger to his own a stranger, a man of sorrows, tears, and agony. Without reluctance, flesh and blood, his substance. He took the form of man, revealed the hidden plan. O glorious mystery, sacrifice of Calvary, and now I know thou art the great I am. Oh, how I love him, how I adore him. My breath, my sunshine, my all in all. The great creator became my savior, and all God's fullness dwelleth in him. He became a man, and he lived on earth, and he was accessible to man. You see, that's another thing that really set Jesus apart. He was accessible. He came to live among us. He didn't come as a hermit in a cave. He didn't come as this wise guru sitting on the top of a mountain that you had to climb in order to get any, any pearls of wisdom from him. No, he walked the streets of Jerusalem, as some of you have done on tours. You walk the streets of Jerusalem, and you picture Jesus walking those streets, rubbing shoulders, bumping into people, talking as he walked. He had those kinds of uh, approaches to the uh, to his life. He had discussions with the Pharisees in the temple and in the town squares. He wept with the bereaved. He touched the sick. He ate with the outcasts of society. This was Jesus. He was accessible to men. No one who wanted to sincerely talk to him was ever turned away. Jesus never said, don't come. In fact, he even said about the children, don't don't forbid them to come. Let them come to me. You know, and sometimes I just picture Jesus rolling on the ground in his robe and kids all over him. You ever get that picture? And your first, first thought may be, whoa, that's almost sacrilegious. But no, that was Jesus. He was accessible to us as mankind. What an incredible person he was. In fact, Jesus said in his own words, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry a heavy burden, and what I will give you rest. Come to me. Come. Come. I'm accessible to you. That is God with us. Now, there's no record in Scripture anywhere that Jesus was ever called Emmanuel, but he definitely was God with his people. So we've seen that God is accessible to man. God came to earth to live as a human being. But why did he come? Why did he leave heaven and come to earth? Well, there's a number of reasons in Scripture, and we don't have time to look at all of them. But I want to talk about two this morning. One is found in John 1.14. John says, we have seen his glory. The glory is of the one and only Son who came from the Father. So God, or Jesus came to earth to reveal the glory of God to us so that mankind would see the glory. And I love the fact that John says, we have seen this glory. This wasn't a mystical perception that Jesus had or that people would have of Jesus, but it was a personal eyewitness account that John is, is writing on about. He says, I have seen that glory. I've seen it. 
Turn with me, if you would, please, to 1 John chapter 1. Because John really expands on this idea of having seen, having been an eyewitness, having been right there to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 1. Probably many of you know this. Maybe you've memorized it over the years. But it is a passage that expands on this idea of seeing the glory. John says, this, that which was from the beginning, that is Christ, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. He makes it very clear where we've done the seeing. We've seen them with our eyes. So it's not just an imagination. It's not a hallucination. It's an actual eyewitness. I've seen him with my eyes, which we have looked at, in case you didn't get the idea of seeing it with your eyes. He looked at it. And our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also may have fellowship with us. You think John's trying to get a point across? John is saying, I have seen it. Jesus is real. He's on the ground. He's walking. He's being touched. He's talking. He's eating. He's, he's interacting with people. God with us. What an incredible picture that is of God coming to earth and being available to us. It's not something that Jesus just identified as. You know, we're, we're into that today, aren't we? Everybody wants to identify as something. There were a couple of students that came out of a, a math class one day, and one of them turned to the other one and said, you know, I just don't feel like a triangle today. I think maybe I'm a rectangle. You see, humor, but a matter of saying, I identify, if because I identify with something, that's what I am. No, that's not the case. That's not truth. Jesus never identified as a man. He was fully man. Every bone, every sinew, organ, muscle that a man would have, Jesus had because he was made in the flesh. And John said, we have seen this. The word seen suggests a long, warm, intimate view, even a view of astonishment and uh, and close attentive looking. It was, wasn't just a glance that he saw Jesus. He looked at him, he glanced, he, he was there, he stared at him, he had intense vision of who Jesus was. You see, Jesus put himself in places where he could be closely scrutinized. As I said, he didn't hide in a cave, he didn't climb to the top of a mountain. He was among people all the time. And there was a point in his life where he was being, being challenged when he said, I've walked with you all the time. I've been here all the time. I, I'm real. I am here with you and for you. And so, it is in, and so he, he makes it very clear, I have seen this word. Now, it is interesting that and from this point on, after this chapter, after this verse, rather, John never again uses the word to describe Jesus. 
John J.B. Lightfoot in his commentary says, St. John leaves behind him the use of the word logos in order, therefore, throughout the book to use only the historical name Jesus, but also the more personal terms of father and son. Because you see, he established the fact that Jesus was this word, this principle, this, this person who brought the universe together, the creator, the one who was God. He establishes that early on, and then from that point on, he is father, he is Jesus, he is savior, he is the intimate one, the one that we, you and I, can connect with. And he came <clears throat> to bring God's glory. We have seen his glory. Now, to the world around uh, the disciples, Jesus was a very unpretentious person, very unassuming. He didn't have any fanfare other than at the triumphal entry. Nobody really paid attention to him. They saw him. They, they heard him. He didn't have any great prestige. You know, what good thing, after all, can come out of Nazareth? Uh, that, that was the imp image Jesus had. Isaiah 53, 2 said he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we would desire. It was obvious in his low birth, uh, lowly birth in, the, in a stable or a cave, and uh, his upbringing in that environment would certainly have not brought him much glory or, or prestige or attention. But yet, God's glory was very evident in the life of Jesus. When the angel appeared to the shepherds in the fields, what did, we, what did they see? They saw the glory of God that surrounded them, and they were afraid. John saw God, Christ's glory physically on the mountain. When John and, and his friends were brought up with Jesus onto the mountain, and Jesus was transfigured, we call it, was, he, he morphed into something different which is that term there. Uh, but there's, there's a difference. There's a, it says his face and his clothing shone as white as the sun, as bright as the sun. There was that glory that he saw. He saw how Christ displayed the glory of God through his compassion and love with people. He saw this glory through his humility. He saw the glory through his miracles. Now, this glory that he revealed was his father's glory, it wasn't Jesus on his own over here shining this way, but it was the God, God the Father, whose glory shone through the Son and through the Spirit. So he came to reveal the glory of God. He also came, secondly, to save the lost. Early in his ministry, Jesus entered the synagogue, and he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Shortly before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus told Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus came to seek and to save. He came to seek. This is evidence of God's or of Christ's active involvement. He didn't simply sit back and say, okay, I'm here. You know, here are my office hours. Here's my, my, my plaque on my door. Come and see me. 
if you have the need. No, no, he didn't do that. He was out actively seeking the lost. You see, all major religions testify for man's search for God. Pastor Jay has repeatedly said that religion is, is one word, do, and Christianity is one word, done. Religion is do. What can I do? How can I, can I help myself? What do I need to do to be saved, etc.? Mark Twain said that from his cradle to his grave, a man never does a single thing which has any first foremost object save one, to secure peace of mind and spiritual comfort for himself. People want to do this, but they want to do it on their own terms. They want peace, they want self-comfort, but they want to do it their way. You know, the old song, that, the song that used to be sung, I did it my way. And guess where that leads us? To my end, which isn't the end that God has, uh, that is best for us from God's perspective. No one can find relationship with God on their own without help from God. John 6, says, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, as he quotes from the Psalms, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's a pretty bleak statement, isn't it? Kind of puts a rest to the idea of a seeker service, right? Because according to Scripture, there are no seekers. Only as you are drawn by God can you find him. Now, some of you in our service this morning may be here because God is drawing you. And, and, and it may be against your will. You're saying, I don't want anything to do with this, but yet you feel drawn into God's presence. Don't fight that, because that's how you come to know the one and only Jesus Christ. He's drawing you to confess your sin and to receive him as your Savior. But you see, Jesus said, I do, I'm doing more than just seeking people. I'm not seeking to build an army. I'm not seeking to, to build a new kingdom. I'm not seeking to overthrow the Roman oppression. I am seeking people to bring salvation to their lives. And it's because he came in the flesh that he is able to do that. Probably many of you, probably maybe all of you at one time or another have seen the classic movie that's usually shown at Christmas time. It's a wonderful life. And it's a story of George Bailey's Christian-like virtues and contributions to the community. Through a series of events, George gets to see the dark and dark and dismal side of the world and what it would have been like had he not been born. And you know the story if you've seen it, and if you haven't, it's worth watching because it's a good picture of what this world would be like if Christ had not come into this world. It is dark, it is dismal, it is evil, it is self-centered, but Christ came to bring forgiveness of sins. When he finds the lost, he's there to save them. All of us face death because of our sin, but now forgiveness is available. 
It's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked on this earth, 2,000, over 2,000 years since someone was able to touch him or have a conversation with him. But Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Man's longing and need is the same as it was when Jesus came. And guess what? Jesus still offers the same salvation and forgiveness of sins that he offered to men of his day. And that is the forgiveness and the, of sin and peace in our lives. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace. If you're looking for peace, you aren't going to find it unless you come to Jesus Christ. And recognize the fact that God with us includes peace that comes to us. The only peace comes through a personal relationship with Emmanuel, God with us. A few weeks ago, I attended a Christmas program, and as part of the service, there was a time for confession and absolution. That was a new one to me. I hadn't seen that before. Confession, yes, we do that Sunday mornings, but absolution was not, is not part of my vocabulary and my practice, but it was here. After confession, the pastor said, hear the good news. God sent his son to be your savior. So far, he's right on. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for you. Still right on. Through this, your sins are forgiven. Eh, question mark on that one, because there's something more that is needed. In the stead... And by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So all of us who were at that service had our sins forgiven, whether we wanted to or not, I guess, because he did it. And I want to say, friends, listen to me. Only Jesus can forgive sins. A human might help you, a pastor might help you, a friend might guide you to that point where you pray that prayer of, of repentance, but only Jesus forgives sins. So what's the summons? Well, first of all, if you're not saved, you don't understand what God with, with us really means. Yes, the Bible is very clear that God is everywhere. We recognize that. God, God is omniscient or in, and omnipresent everywhere at one time. But the question is, what will you do with the God who is with us? What will you do with him? And what are you doing with him? To fully experience God with us, needs to, you need to confess your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said, the Son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. And it is only through confession and repentance and acceptance of Christ's death on the cross for our sin. For believers, the question is, do, we ref do our lives reflect the truth of God with us? Can people see us and say, God is with you? I used to have a sweatshirt that said, if you were on trial for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? I didn't want to wear that too many places because it's, it's uh, very convicting. You know, what's my behavior like? What do I look, live like? Do people understand when I wear something like that, that I really want to reflect God? Because God is with us, 
to your coworkers or at work? Do you use your time well? Do you have respect for your coworkers, even for that boss that you're not really fond of? Could your boss tell that you are with, that God is with you? What about in home, in your home? How do you treat one another as family? Would your brothers or sisters or your parents or your children know God is with you by the way you treat them? Young people, is it evident when you're in school that God is with you? Would somebody be able to say, would your classmates be able to look at you and say, well, you're different? And you could say, yeah, God is with me. And not just in a formula type of way to say, well, God's with me. No, no, in an actual heartfelt way. The third point is not really a summons, but it is an encouragement. And that is, as Scripture tells us, that one day God will again dwell with us among us. In Revelation chapter 21, John says, when I saw, and, and, and it's interesting, it's back to John. John's again talking about the incarnate Christ, the God with us. But then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, from, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with, God will be with them as their God. So Christ came to earth to be with us. And he ends the world, as it were, God with us. That is our final spot. What a great way, I think, to end one year and begin a new year. To know that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. He will be with us throughout this coming year. None of us knows know what 2024 is like, is going to be like. None of us. But we do know that God is there. You know, the old hymn said, I may not know the future, but I know who holds the future. God with us. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to recognize that you are with us, that you love to be with us, that you rejoice in our presence. You are glad to be with us. And Father, may we, as your people, be glad to be with you and to have you with us and not to be ashamed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.